two weeks ago in our study, we read Jesus' statement to his disciples that says, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We learned last week that the verses that follow this statement of Jesus describe the kind of righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, the kind of godly attitudes and actions that should be found and increasing in the lives of those who have chosen to follow Jesus, those whom he called a city on a hill. In these verses, Jesus uses six examples of how the religious leaders of his day focused on legalistic external obedience to God's word, but failed to embrace an inner obedience from the heart. They failed to understand the motive and intent of the law. This caused them to apply the law incorrectly. Conversely, Jesus sets a higher standard than the legalistic interpretations of the Jewish religious leaders. He sets a standard that embraces and fulfills the true intent and motivation of the law. In each of the six examples, Jesus focuses on some dimension of human relationships by citing or alluding to a current popular interpretation or traditional practice surrounding an Old Testament text. In each example, Jesus starts with the phrase, you have heard it was said, blah, 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 but I say to you, tadeep, tadeep, tadeep. Jesus was saying, this is the way you guys are used to thinking and acting related to X, but if you are my disciple, blank is what you should think and how you should act related to X. In other words, blank is the higher standard found in the kingdom of heaven. And last week we started filling in those blanks, and today we're going to fill in a few more of them. So last week we considered Jesus' first example of greater righteousness or the higher standards of the kingdom. What did it deal with? Do you remember? Oh, some of I did at least a good enough job. Some of you remember. That's right. Anger. Jesus said that to be angry with another individual is to be deserving of the same judgment and punishment as murdering that person. In the kingdom of heaven, it's not enough just to avoid physical homicide. Jesus' disciples must decisively forsake anger and intentionally pursue reconciliation with other believers and non-believers alike. Well, remember, I'm a guy who likes to ask questions, so why should we forsake anger? Because at the heart of the command, do not murder, is the recognition that every person is made in the image of God. And because of this, is deserving of dignity. When we vent ungodly anger at another person, we're demeaning someone made in God's image. We are committing identity theft as we rob them of their identity as God's own creation. Well, another question, why should we pursue reconciliation with others who are angry at us? Because God in Christ has made it possible for us to be reconciled with him. God has not given us what we deserve for our sins, death, 
No, instead, he has shown mercy toward us, forgiving us of our sins through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. When we intentionally pursue reconciliation with others, we reflect God's merciful and loving character. We become a city on a hill that shines brightly, reflecting a true picture of God to the world. And God just smiles. Today, we continue with Jesus' sermon by pondering his words on some other aspects of human relationships. Sexual purity and lust, the sanctity of marriage and divorce, and oath-taking and integrity of speech. I'm going to invite you to do something. I'm going to invite you to stand again right now. Go ahead and stand as we prepare to read aloud together Jesus' words to his disciples and his words to us. Let's read these aloud in unison. There's five slides, so let's hang with me. You're ready? Here we go. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oath to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it is God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes, and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Thank you. Please be seated. In the examples of greater righteousness we just read, Jesus moves from the sixth commandment, you shall not murder, that we looked at last week when we talked about anger, to the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. In the Old Testament, adultery involves sexual intercourse with mutual consent between a man married or unmarried and the wife of another man. But in verse 28, Jesus makes clear that he's not limiting his comments to married people, but is addressing those who are married and unmarried. So this is for all of us. Adultery was considered one of the most serious offenses possible. 
The term adultery and the penalty, death by stoning, applied both to the man and the woman involved. Adultery was considered so serious because it broke the bond of marriage that God had intended to reflect the relationship between him and his people. Adultery is not just a sin against another person, against a a spouse. It's a sin against God. But Jesus here proclaims a higher standard. He says that if a man looks at a woman lustfully, he has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus recognized that his world made women objects to be possessed. Not much has changed in 2,000 years, has it? Jesus' words show that to look at a woman lustfully is to rob her of her humanity and her value as God's creation. Jesus' pronouncement reaffirms the Old Testament commitment to the unity of marriage and takes it to its deepest intended meaning. It's not enough to maintain physical purity. The purity of marriage includes exclusive devotion to one another in every aspect of one's life. Oneness with a wife means that her husband gives himself to her and to her alone, and vice versa. When a man even looks with desire at another woman, he rejects his wife and gives himself to another. He breaks the bond of oneness between them. Adultery, therefore, is not only physical sexual intercourse, but also mentally engaging in such an act of unfaithfulness. Jesus uses two graphic and dramatic examples to illustrate the seriousness of lust. Amputation of a right eye and of a right hand. First, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better to lose your eye than to end up in hell. Second, he says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose your hand than to end up in hell. Can you imagine folks sitting there that day on the mountain and hearing him uh, say these words? How you would have felt and how the people around you, how they would have been reacting? Now, by the way, Jesus is not, he's not advocating self-mutilation and amputation of body parts here. He's using hyperbole to show how serious lust is. Why does Jesus use eyes and hands in the illustrations? Well, Eyes and hands are the primary offenders in most sexual sin. Jesus' reference to the right eye and the right hand provided even more gravity as most people in those days and even today are right-handed. This meant the right side, the right eye, the right hand, anything that was on the right was considered the side of power and importance and thus more valuable. This is my paraphrase of what Jesus is saying. People, lust will eat you up and spit you out. It will lead to destruction and hell itself. Do whatever is necessary to run away from it. Lust has become normalized in our contemporary sex-crazed society. The advent of the internet has brought pornography, a rocket fuel for lust, into our dens, living rooms, cars, and offices via our computers, tablets, and phones. 
This fuel is always just a click away, and it's not just non-Christians who are filling up at the pump. A 2014 survey conducted by the Barna Group indicated that among men who considered themselves born-again Christians, these are not just guys who say, well, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a, I, was, I was raised a Christian, I come from a Christian family. They said, I'm a born-again Christian. 95% admitted that they have viewed pornography. 54, 54% said they look at pornography at least once a month. 44% indicated they had viewed pornography at work in the last 60 days. 31% confessed they had had a sexual affair while married. 25% said they erase internet browsing history to conceal pornography use. And 18% admitted being addicted to pornography. And another 9% said they thought they might be. Other surveys indicate that these numbers are likely very conservative, that the problem is much greater than any of us would like to admit. If you're caught in the grip of lust and pornography, I want you to know this morning, there is hope. There are many men and women who have come to experience freedom and walk in victory over lust. Well, what do we have to do to overcome lust? I just want to mention three quick things this morning. Number one, we have to tell someone. The darkness in our lives won't be defeated as long as we keep our sins hidden. We must choose to open our lives to the light. We do that by confessing our sin, not just to God, but to another person. Two, we must become accountable. We must be willing to walk together in relationship with others who will love and encourage us when we fall and who will cheer and celebrate with us when we succeed. Three, we must displace our passion for lust with another passion, a passion for God. Like anger, we won't conquer lust by suppressing it or by venting it. We must displace it. We must fall more in love with God and with his son, Jesus Christ. Church, for these actions to become a reality, we as a church have to do some things differently. Number one, we have to start talking about sexual matters and quit avoiding them. For too long, the church has shied away from these awkward topics and just treated them as taboo. Well, we don't talk about that here. Number two, we must become a safe place for men and women to talk about their sexual temptations and sins. People have to know they won't be castigated for admitting they have a stronghold in their life, but will be loved and supported as they pursue transformation. Three, we must provide forums for individuals to experience healing and restoration. We must choose to invest in resources and programs designed to help individuals experience freedom. I want you all to know that it's my desire and intention as your senior pastor that HBC, that Hawkwood, become this kind of church. A church where we can be authentic and can find forgiveness, healing, and freedom in every arena of our lives. Well, as heavy as it is, Jesus moves on from the topic of lust to talk about a second 
higher standard. A higher standard for marriage and divorce. Divorce was widespread in the ancient world. In the Old Testament, divorce was controlled by legislation, but not banned. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4 states that if a man found his wife displeasing because he discovers something indecent about her, that he could divorce her. He divorced her by writing her a certificate of divorce. The regulations God gave for divorce through Moses were designed to do three things. Number one, they were designed to protect the sanctity of marriage from being defiled. Two, they were designed to protect the woman from a husband who might simply send her away without just cause. And number three, the doc, um, um, to, to document the woman's status as, as legitimately divorced so she was not thought to be a harlot or runaway. And that's what the certificate did. In the Old Testament, divorced women were permitted to remarry if they had a certificate proving lawful divorce. However, the reality was that even with a, certifi- a, a, a certificate, it's hard, hard for me to say today, if the woman remained single, she often still had to resort to prostitution to support herself because she had little, if any, means of income. In Jesus' day, the sanctity of marriage was being lost among the Jewish religious leaders who wrangled and debated this mosaic regulation that we just talked about, especially the meaning of the word indecency. Most interpretations of the law suppose that a man had, had virtually, virtually limitless power over his wife, including the right to initiate divorce proceedings if he found something indecent or immodest about her. The rabbis in Jesus' day, Jesus day debated these terms, but surprise, surprise, they always slanted their decisions toward male interests. Some Jewish leaders, such as Rabbi Hillel, interpreted indecency to mean divorce was permitted for almost any, claw, any cause, including, and I kid you not, this is true, this is what he said, burning the food. Ladies, you would, not, you would have been very careful not to burn the toast in those days. It was in this atmosphere of wrangling about legitimate grounds for divorce that Jesus comes and sets a higher standard. He says, whoever divorces his wife, he says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a notice of divorce. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus goes back to God's original intention for marriage. God intended marriage to be a permanent union of a man and woman into one. God hates divorce because it tears apart what should be considered a permanent bond. In Jesus' ethics, adultery is unfaithfulness to one's spouse or accommodating another person's unfaithfulness to that person's spouse. Just as lust is one form of unfaithfulness in marriage, so is divorce. In Jesus' teaching, the man who betrays his spouse by divorce is no less unfaithful to his marriage than the adulterer or lustful person and presumably warrants the same punishment prescribed by the preceding passage that we just read. And that, that, uh, 
that punishment is damnation to hell. In principle, remarriage is adulterous because God rejects the validity of divorce. However, as did Moses, Jesus allows for an exception. Even though God sees marriage as permanent, sometimes the marriage bond has been violated to such a degree that a spouse has already torn apart the union by committing pornaya. That's a Greek word that we find in this verse. Where it says sexual immorality or unchastity, the Greek word is pornaya. Pornaya is most appropriately rendered marital unfaithfulness. Some adultery has already been specified by another word. Moikuo in verses 27-28. It's possible that pornaya, a different word used here, means something less specific than sexual infidelity, but following the mosaic intention more than something frivolous. The meaning of pornaya, and with it legitimate biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage, is hotly debated within the church today. Some believe pornaya only applies to the act of adultery and that remarriage should never happen. It should never be condoned. Others interpret pornaya to include adultery or desertion as legitimate grounds for divorce. Those who hold this view also see Jesus' statement of remarriage as adulterous as applying only to those illegitimately divorced. In other words, to those who were divorced where adultery or desertion did not occur. Still others believe pornaya includes any sinful activity that intentionally divides the marital relationship. These would include incest, homosexuality, prostitution, molestation, and indecent exposure. Like the second view, it represents remarriage as biblically allowed after a scripturally sanctioned divorce. We don't have time today to wade further into this debate and examine other relevant scriptures on the topic. But whatever your understanding of scripture on the matter, one thing is undebatable. Jesus was setting a much higher standard than the mindset toward marriage and divorce in the culture of his day and of our day. Jesus asserts unequivocally the sacredness of marriage and claims that God's intention was and is for a lasting union between a man and a woman, a union that recognizes the full humanity of both male and female. While the law and Jesus make concession for a broken world, Jesus articulates God's will for a restored and reconciled world. The reign of God, therefore, does not treat divorce as a normative occurrence. There's so much more that we could say about marriage and divorce if we had more time, but we don't. However, I don't want to move on without at least saying these four things. Number one, this is important that you hear this. Jesus doesn't command divorce in the case of marital unfaithfulness. He allows for it as an action of last resort. The heart of God is always for reconciliation in all relationships, including marriage. If an offending spouse is truly repentant and willing to be held accountable, restoration of a marriage is possible even after adultery. 
There are many couples who can testify of God's power to restore broken marriages if there is true repentance. Number two, if you're the victim of an unwanted divorce, God is not mad at you. He grieves with you over your brokenness and the sin of your spouse. He loves you and he wants to help you to forgive and to experience healing and restoration. Number three, Jesus is not saying that a scripturally illegitimate divorce or a scripturally illegitimate remarriage is an unpardonable sin. Like any other sin, we receive forgiveness for choosing an unbiblical divorce or an unbiblical remarriage by confessing our sin and receiving God's blessing. And number four, Jesus is not advocating that if you entered into an unscriptural divorce and have remarried, that you divorce your current spouse and return to the first. To do so would be to commit another sin and bring further relational and emotional wreckage into your life and those closest to you. Hard words. After Jesus presents a higher standard regarding adultery and lust and regarding marriage and divorce, he tackles another matter, the use of oaths. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven because it is God's throne or by the earth because it is his footstool or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your word yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is advocating a higher standard when it comes to taking oaths. He says his followers are not to swear at all. Now, by the way, this, he isn't referring here to using profanity or cursing. Uh, like it's easy to hear every day on the C train or on the bus. He's referring to invoking God's name or substitutes for it to guarantee the truth of what one says. The Old Testament allowed a person to swear by the name of God to substantiate an important affirmation or promise. An oath or vow sometimes helped a person remain faithful to their commitments. The law demanded that a person be true to any oath sworn. Although not required, oaths handled properly received approval from God. Rabbis had developed, developed a highly structured hierarchy of oaths in Jesus' day. Some contended that only oaths that invoked God's name were binding. To protect God's name against inadvertent oath-breaking, many Jews used other items to swear by. Some thought it harmless to deceive if swearing by something other than God's name, such as uh, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, or one's head. The further the item was from God's name, the less binding the oath was thought to be and the bigger the loophole available to be exploited. 
But Jesus stresses that each of these items belongs to God. So the conventional Jewish distinctions are immaterial. (coughs) Excuse me. By contrast, Jesus' disciples should be people of such integrity of character and truthfulness of heart that whatever they say is absolutely believable and dependable. A person of integrity is one who in daily conversation is so truthful and reliable that his or her words are believed without an oath. In other words, a simple yes or no should be enough for a trustworthy person. Now, this is important you catch this. Jesus wasn't saying that oaths are intrinsically sinful or evil. God placed himself under an oath to Abraham when he promised to bless him. Psalm 110.4 tells us that God took an oath when he declared Christ's priesthood as one like Melchizedek. And in Galatians 1.20, we find Paul using God's name in an oath. Not swearing, but in an oath to substantiate what, what he was saying. From these examples, we can see it's not sinful to swear an oath when in court or to swear allegiance to a monarch, provided we remember that our first allegiance is always to God. Jesus' point is not that oaths are wrong. His point is that a disciple's simple word should be considered as trustworthy as a signed document or a contract. He says that anything beyond this, where swearing is used to deceive, can only have one source, the evil one, Satan. Jesus calls his followers to a higher standard. He expects integrity of heart and speech without the need for oaths. Those who embrace kingdom rule recognize that God witnesses every word spoken. Because of this, oaths are unnecessary. Let's sum up what we've talked about today. Jesus called his disciples on the mountain and he calls us today to a higher standard standard. A standard that flees from lust, that champions the sanctity and permanence of marriage and avoids divorce, if at all possible, and that speaks words that are absolutely trustworthy. If you choose to submit to God's rulership, (coughs) excuse me, if you submit, if you choose to submit to God's rulership, He will transform you from the inside out and empower you not just to aspire to, but to live out these standards, these higher standards. He will make impossible righteousness possible within you. A righteousness greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. You will be part of a city on a hill, shining brightly and reflecting a true image of God to a broken and desperate world. Let's pray.